nothing in life has meaning until we decide to give it meaning. And then what type of meaning are we deciding to give it? And then that puts you on an empowering journey. It is an empowering journey. And from that empowering journey, you take more action. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. This is your host, Dr. Michael McManus. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see my special virtual office today. This is my dream office here, but today I've got a special feature for you. This is an interview with Joe Fairless from Ashcroft Capital. This is from the Invest Beyond Multifamily Conference. If you don't know Joe, Joe is a great success story who left his career as an advertising exec and moved into multifamily syndication. He's a super high quality individual and one of my mentors. So please enjoy this interview. I think it's just a great opportunity to get to know Joe better and he shares some really great wisdom. Today to have Joe Fairless. I'm lucky that I can call him a friend for almost a decade. This guy is one of the pioneers of apartment syndication. A story that he only started telling recently, to the best of my knowledge, but I've known him for a long time. Is this very first apartment deal lost a million dollars of investing capital? Everything that could have gone wrong with this deal did, and then some. He even got spit on that when things were going wrong. But on that deal, again, investors have lost a million dollars. And when the deal sold, they were out their capital. He promised them all, he pulled 14 people up on the phone. He promised that he was going to do whatever it takes to make sure that they get their money back. Took him almost three years to pay them back. And this is before he was Joe Ferris. So it took him almost three years to pay these investors back. He also gave them the promise 14% annualized cash on cash on top of the money that he paid back. So look, if you look up the integrity, the, the, the definition of integrity, this guy's in that. So one of the pioneers, Joe, thank you for your time. The two people that are going to interview you today, Jonathan Hyatt. And Mike McManus, both of these gentlemen have a great podcast. They're excited to be here. And gentlemen, take it away. Great. Well, welcome everyone, Joe. We are grateful to have you here. We're thankful that you took the time out to join us today. We're talking about scaling today. So when we think about scaling, one of the first things I think about is goal setting. And talking to someone with $2.7 billion in assets under management, that can be intimidating. And for someone just starting out, when we're thinking about setting goals, how do you think about goal setting? Do you think shoot for the stars and land on the moon and, and come up with some ridiculous goal? Or do you think about starting with realistic goals? How, Joe, how do you think about goal setting? Goal setting is a good topic to, to start with. I'm glad you did. I am a, a believer in 50-50 goals. And 50-50 goals, something that I believe Tim Ferriss talked about, and then I adopted, or if he didn't talk about it, then maybe he's just getting a few credit. But either way, 50-50 goals are basically 50% of the goal is achieving the goal that we set out for. And that's cut and dry, right? We either did or didn't. It's quantifiable. 
The other 50% of the goal is regardless if we achieve that goal, what do we learn for our journey in the future? So it's setting ourselves up for success because we may or may not shoot those stars and may not even to answer analogy. But even if, regardless of that outcome, we're going to set ourselves up for success with identifying in advance who we will become, what skills we will acquire, regardless of that outcome. And that's something that's really comforting when we set goals. When I'll speak for myself, when I set goals, it's something that's really comforting because ultimately we are playing an infinite game. And I think I've previously I've been misguided when I think of business as a finite game where there's a beginning to the end. Really, it's an infinite game. And I got this from Simon, Simon Sinek, where he, he talks about how you don't win business. You don't win a relationship with your spouse or your significant other. You make progress along the way and you reach different milestones. And having that mentality has been really helpful for me and for, I believe, others that I share it with. Because it puts less pressure on achieving that specific quantifiable outcome, although that's important, that's 50% of it, but it puts more focus on just improving incrementally, personally, as you go through the journey and acquiring skills along the way and playing that into it. Can we talk about scaling? Because I think a lot of people in the world are solo shops, or we got into this, what can we do with ourselves? So, the, looking at who we need on our team, what would you say are the most important people to have as an assistant and like a partner to start to be able to scale and be more than just one person? I'm not a real estate agent, nor have I ever been one, but an insight from the book The Millionaire Real Estate Agent by Gary Keller was really impactful for me. And in that book, he mentions the first hire should be a, an administrative assistant to help take on the things that he or she can take on for you to free you up and do, do other high value, high dollar tasks and things. So I would say that that was the first hire that I had. And I think that's the first hire that would be beneficial for most people in commercial real estate, whether it's apartments or, or industrial. Joe, I've heard you say recently that Sometimes investors or operators need to be doing unscalable things and that it's okay to be doing unscalable things. Can you talk about that in terms of when to hire, when to stay as a solopreneur? When is it okay for an investor to be doing unscalable things? And when should the investor be thinking about hiring that stuff out? Yeah, it's an insightful observation because I believe the right time to do unscalable things is when you don't have the momentum yet. So if you don't have the system down and you don't have the momentum that is carrying you through, then we've still got to be in the trenches to figure out how to get that momentum going. Once we have that momentum, then we can start bringing in another person to help carry that momentum and help propel it forward with our guidance. Specifically, my podcast. Over 3,000 episodes to date, and I did the first 1,500 to 2,000 episodes to get that momentum. Now I do a couple interviews a month, and other partners like 
Osh, for example, uh, is slow, but he's in the room, and Joe Cornwell, although I'm not sure if he's shown up yet, he's attending too. They are doing interviews and taking advantage of the platform that was built and also helping contribute to the platform that was built through those first 1,500 interviews. And so I think that's a, a really easy way to determine if we should bring someone on or not. Like, have I gotten this specific thing, whatever it is, to a place where there's enough momentum to carry it forward and then I can guide it through? So Ash just talked a little bit about how he didn't want to do bigger deals because he had a safe place. I think for a lot of them getting out of that safe zone. But if you're early on and a deal maybe is too big for what we've done so far, for somebody who's now on the other side of big, if you found a big, a good big deal, how would you just to go about that? Some more than you're right. Well, depends on the person. Uh, in, the, in the specific situation, I, I don't think I have blanket advice for that because it would depend on the person. So I heard you say a big deal, and I heard you say more than they're ready for. So then I would wonder, is it more than they're ready from a psychological standpoint, and they know the mechanics of how to operate it, and they know how to attract the right team members, help them perform, or is it more than they're ready for because they're not proficient in underwriting, and if they buy this deal, they're buying it at the wrong price, and they're overly optimistic on assumptions. That's if the, the latter is the case, then I don't buy the deal. Like, but if it's the former, then I would say get out of your own way and don't be selfish. Because I have a personal belief that generally speaking, most people are good people. There are bad people in this world. Not disillusioned by that. But I believe most people are good people. And when people are able to do what they want for a living, make more money, I believe they will then free up their time to then pursue their unique skill sets, pursue their passions, and that makes a better world. That's my belief. That's how I connect the dots. And so I don't be selfish if you have the right mechanics down and it's just a psychological barrier. People that you could be helping out through this trickle-down process are not being helped out. People that you serve, your family, your investors, the new tenants, the families of the new tenants who you're giving them a new place to have their business, they're not served because you're being a limp and you're being selfish and because you just can't get over this mental barrier. Well, get out of your own way and think about others. I know whenever I am dealing with challenging times, the first thing I do is I go volunteer and I get perspective from, I volunteer with hospice, I get perspective. I'll give you perspective a little bit. And it gives you perspective, gives me perspective on what other people are going through. And then, hey, how can I serve them? And in this case, if you're doing a bigger deal, you're going to make a larger impact as a human being on this very short, relatively short period of time we have on Earth. And so go get after it. Joe, I want to ask you about your specific journey and some experiences that you've had from your journey in building the best ever brand. So best ever podcast, longest running real estate, daily real estate podcast with 3,000 episodes. That's, it's mind-boggling. It's incredible. We got the best ever conference seven years in a row now, I think. Building Ashcroft Capital, 
Looking back over the last 10 plus years, some of the most important decisions that you made to scale to get to the point that you are now? What one, I mean, going back linearly, as well as I can think of it right now, off the top of my head, one is deciding to sample life experiences while I had a WQ job. I was in advertising in New York City and I was uh, youngest vice president of an agency, but I didn't care what I was doing at all. I had apathy, complete apathy towards what I was doing. So I decided to sample life experiences by um, interviewing other people who had successful careers. So I wanted to write a book about that. I um, taught a class on how to buy cash flowing properties. I was living in New York City, but I was buying in Texas. So I taught a class on how to do that. And so I was sampling, hey, maybe I want to teach about real estate. I want to become a better public speaker. So I took improv. And then I went to class and I said, right here, I said, become a better public speaker. They said, you should do stand up comedy. Because improv, you see, the audience knows you see this bottle of water for the first time. So they give you some slack. But stand up comedy, you better come seven seconds to make people laugh. And I was terrible at it, obviously, because <laughs> I'm not a funny guy. But in fact, this comedy club I performed at is now shut down. <laughs> it shut down shortly after. Not because of people. No, of course not. Of course not. But I sampled different experiences while under the safety net of a W-2 job. And then I realized, all right, I want to do this. And that was a part of investing. Waiting for any booze from this room. <laughs> and then after I decided that, I said I was going to quit my job. And I had $50,000 in my bank account. And... I had no really no money coming in besides 250 bucks a month for four homes. And that was how I got out of the gate. So that was one sample of life experiences. The other was, well, I went from four single family homes to 168 unit property in Amelia and living in New York City, buying in Amelia, Ohio. Never been to Cincinnati, I don't think, in my life prior to that. And so taking the leap on going into a very large property, which as Ash mentioned, I got in over my head and it lost money. I did, had every mistake in the book and it flopped, but I moved into that property. That was another milestone actually. Okay, I'm gonna do whatever I can to turn it around. So I moved into the property, lived at the leasing office and was you know, pack up my stuff in the morning, walk to the leasing office, go try and lease the apartment and show the model unit that I was living in. And it was crazy time. I was filling potholes with a shovel in the evenings. And so I'd say throwing myself all in into the problem. But here's the takeaway that I learned from it. I wasn't enough. I did everything I could to throw all my resources, my personal resources, at the problem. The problem was too big. And so that was a big, big epiphany. It's like, no matter, I can try really hard at accomplishing something. And I can give it my all, but still, it's too big for me to fix. And so that's helped me. That's another milestone for me. That's helped me understand, okay, there are problems that I can't solve alone, regardless of how hard I try. And so that's helped me for the future to help me grow our business, bringing on a partner. And as soon as I brought on a partner, off and running we went. And he brings the skill sets that I don't have. And so I'd say bringing on the partner would be the next one. And then and I think that's the last big one, finding the right partner. I tell you, for everyone who is seeking partners, I would just caution you on 
how you qualify a partner. A lot of the times in our industry, work partner gets thrown around and used rather loosely. And instead of finding a partner, we're actually finding a someone who should be our employee or should be really a mentee of ours. They're not a true partner. A partner is someone who has successfully done what their responsibilities are as it relates to the partnership you have with him or her. So for example, I have a friend, she brought on director of acquisitions. She's in multifamily. I brought on, she brought on a director of acquisitions. That director of acquisitions was lead underwriter for a bank. That person knew underwriting really well, but they didn't have any relationships with brokers or with sellers. And so they were terrible at acquisitions and that person was fired shortly thereafter. And so when we seek partners, and I found it's important to be mindful of, has that person done exactly, exactly what they're going to be doing in our partnership successfully? Obviously, you got to get along with him or her and integrity and character and all that needs to be aligned. But have they done exactly what they're going to be doing with me as it relates to our partnership? And it's a simple observation, but it's overlooked a lot of times in our industry and something that could be helpful. So when you're starting out and we're all learning and maybe trying to get to that next level and scaling up. And so it's hard then when you're, when you're still learning to understand maybe, maybe sometimes what it is that you need from that partner, but you need somebody to help you do more to grow. How do you? Cross that bridge when looking for a partner. Because maybe I don't know that I need this exact skill set out of somebody, but I need somebody to help solve problems together. Then, in my opinion, you don't need a partner yet. The first thing is to identify what are the responsibilities that this business has in order to be successful. In my world, and actually in your world too, it's money, deals, execution. Those are the three buckets. You gotta have the money to buy a deal, you gotta have a deal, you gotta be able to execute on the deal. So those are the three buckets. And if if the individual thinking about partners uh, does not know where he or she's expertise lies, then it's too early. You gotta figure it out. You gotta look in the mirror and you gotta be able to know I'm really good at this part of business, one of these three things. And most likely it's whatever part you really enjoy, because that's ultimately what you're um, so first, you've got to get your house in order by acknowledging what you're really good at, and then also having a honest look in the mirror and say, "Well, this is what I'm not world class at." That's what I realized on my first deal. I was swimming with sharks with commercial real estate, and I was buying four homes. The highest purchase price was eighty-two thousand dollars of the four homes. Then I acquire a six point three million dollar property through a master lease property purchase. And I realized that this is a whole different ballgame. And I'm dealing with people who are coming in with decades of experience and oh I got awarded the deal. How fortunate I must be really good. No, I'm an idiot. Right? I paid too much for it. And all these other individuals that have been in the industry for decades, they knew what I was walking into. I did because I didn't have that right experience. And so it's important to know where you're at as it relates to each of those three buckets and then bringing in someone who has that high quality experience. 
I want to stick on this partnering idea because it is so important. So correct me if I'm wrong. It seems to me like you're suggesting that people find someone with a certain skill set with whom to partner versus a lot of people tend to partner with their buddy who is also kind of into real estate and you know they start doing deals together. It sounds like you would say identify the skill set you need before identifying the person. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's that, that's the key is identifying the skill set that's needed and knowing what skill set you have. Can you talk more about um so we talked about skill set. Can you talk about how personality and goals and vision fit into that? Because you, you might find someone with maybe a skill set that you're looking for, but um that person is looking to looking only to work twenty hours a week or it's a side hustle. Whereas you're looking to scale this thing and you want to work 60 or 80 hours a week or, or vice versa. And so can you talk about the personality and, and culture fit with the partner? Yeah. And fortunately, we're in real estate. We don't do tech startups. So every deal can live on its own. So if the partnership structure for one deal works out, but then you realize he or she is only working 20 hours instead of the 50 hours that, that you're working. Okay. Noted. Move on. Maybe that person will be a good fee-based contractor for this next deal. And so I think that's the beauty and the big benefit of what we do as real estate investors is we can identify deal by deal basis and gradually grow into the relationship with someone by kicking the tire on those deals. That's what I did with my business partner. Frankly, we kind of slowly evolved into what we are now. But at the first two or three deals, we had our separate companies. And then we, we saw that we were uh, complementing each other really well, and then we kept going. So in scaling in today's environment, where if we go back a few years, a little more deals, because money flowed. So with fewer deals or harder to get loans now, I guess that's what the, the difference now between maybe branching out and doing more asset classes versus focusing as being a better point. Well, we only do apartments. I can't speak to any other property type within commercial real estate because I've never perched, I've never been on the GP side, I don't think, on those. I'm an LP in multiple property types outside of apartments. So I believe in the power of focus, but I don't know enough about other property types in commercial real estate to understand if if they're really close enough cousins, you know, industrial versus hotel versus retail and office from an underwriting standpoint, if hey, they're close enough, like let's, let's expand so that that's, I focus exclusively on one. Talk to an investor who is trying to get started or trying to scale and they say it is tough to find deals. It's tough to find a seller or an owner willing to sell. It is tough to find a lender willing to lend in terms that make sense. It is tough to make deals pencil right now. What suggestions or, or words of wisdom do you have for people struggling to get deals right now? Um, I, I would say, and how's that make you feel? And then they'd say depressed. They'd say pissed off. They might say excited. And if they say excited, then I know they've got the psychological component down. And then we can move on to mechanics. But until someone has a psychological component down, then 
it's always always been stuck. Like the, the, when interest rates were really low, it was hard to find a deal that penciled because everyone's paying really high prices. Like and there's always something. I mean, it, people have say they have problems raising money because they live in Cincinnati compared to people who live in Los Angeles or New York, but the people in New York and Los Angeles say it's tough to find deals because they live in Los Angeles and New York and not Cincinnati. I mean, it, it's weak. And so I'd say, let's get the mindset right first. Listen to some Tony Robbins videos. Let's listen to Les Brown and Ziegler and Jim Rome and Goggins and whatever gets your mind right. But ecology and it's, you know, I was listening to Tony Robbins on the way over here. And one thing that this reminds me of is where is your emotional one emotion, if we can all think about it for ourselves, what is the one emotion where it's my default emotion? And mine, I was thinking about mine is determined. That is my default emotion. I am determined. Yes, I get annoyed by things and I get pissed off by things, but I go back to my determined emotional home. Circumstances happen to everyone. Shit happens to everyone. Oh, we weren't cussing. No, you can't. Okay. I'll start first. Yeah. <laughs> Set the tone. <laughs> but ultimately, it's about where do I go back to what's my default? And I think that's the key to working through any challenge, whether it's I can't get started, have a hard time getting started. Well, get excited because so many other people who have weak ass mindsets are thinking the same thing. So now what are you going to do about it? Because we already filtered all them out. So now there's fewer people to compete with you. That's what I would say. And depending on the reaction, they might change. <laughs> and seeing that determination, yeah, we'll see where they're at. That would be my thought process. I might handle it differently, tactically, depending on the person. Somebody asked me this the other day. They're like, well, since I said you're in real estate, there's so much discussion of mindset where every other business venture was more about the business. Why is that such a big thing in this industry? Well, I think the people who aren't focusing on mindset and business are not doing as well as they could. Uh, I think any entrepreneur is, regardless if it's real estate or business, it's mindset first. Uh, because the, the reality is we can all, whatever, all the words I'm saying right now, I guarantee have a unique meaning to every person in this room. Guarantee. And it's based on your life experiences and your life experiences. Some of it resonates, some of it doesn't. One random ass thing I say will resonate with her, and they'll be like, dude, what are you talking about, you idiot? Like, what life experiences you bring to the table? So nothing in life has meaning until we decide to give it meaning. And then what type of meaning are we giving it? What type of meaning are we deciding to give it? And then that puts you on an empowering journey, if it's empowering you. And from that empowering journey, you take more action. And optimists and pessimists, it's been proven that pessimists are absolutely correct more often than optimists. However, optimists, because they're optimists, they keep trying. And so therefore they achieve more. And so it's simply about initially the mindset and how, where our emotional home is first and foremost, whether it's real estate, whether it's a business, and then we, we go from there. Then we look, then we look at we talked about 80% of success in this industry being psychological. Transparently, I'm someone who finds my emotional home not in determinant. 
one of the things I really admire about you, Joe, is your mindset. It's just completely different level. Uh, for someone like me, who's I, I've made a lot of progress in my mindset. I still have a long way to go. There might be other people out there who are not quite at that level. Do you have any uh, suggestions or advice for people who want to level up their mindset? Practice. That's it. So I did not focus on personal development on my mindset until I chose to become an entrepreneur. And I remember watching TED Talks. That's how I started on YouTube. And then through TED Talks, I came across Tony Robbins. And then that put me down, down into an area where I focused on. I started listening to all these personal development people. So if you want to change, then practice. You just don't change my questions. <laughs> At some point, you guys moderate some of these questions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What time, what time do we have till noon? Yes. Okay. Well, I've got a couple more questions, then we can get to audience questions. So, audience, uh, get your get your questions ready. Talk about the context of scaling. A lot of people think of scaling as that means I have to work more. I'm going from part-time real estate investor to full-time or more than full-time. Talk to someone who is more interested in balance, or I've heard you talk about integration. So yes, we want success in business and real estate, but we also want success with our family and our health and our faith and all the different other aspects of life. So can you talk a little bit about balance or integration as you see it? Yeah, I heard a while ago of someone say that work-life balance doesn't exist, but you can integrate and your work life. And so I've actually embraced that. So I bring my wife and our with a almost five year old daughter, bring them to different events that I do, which I don't I do two a year. So uh, mine and this one generally. But in addition to those events, they're integrated in, you know, I work from home. We have an office in New York City, we have an office in Dallas, but I've chosen to work from home and not establish an office so far in Cincinnati. And so it's integrating them into, really, I, I see them every day. It's, it's awesome. And the challenge that I would see in someone who wasn't in, didn't have, so when I was building my business, I didn't have a significant other, I didn't have a kid. When I was in the real growth stage. so. I can't speak from experience about that. And I don't know the solution for that. Because from my experience, I was working an insane amount of time. And I don't have an idea for how you can integrate the family to the degree where you're working so much, but you're also focused on them too. I don't know if you carve out hours or what. So I'm not the best person for that because I didn't go through it once I met my wife and it, it, I was more established in business and I didn't, didn't have to. But I, I will say that building a business and wanting to work 20 to 25 hours a week, they don't go hand in hand. Like I mentioned earlier, get to the place where there's momentum. And then once you have it in a place where there's momentum, then you can start bringing on other team members to help carry that momentum through. And only you really know if you have the proper momentum or not. But I'm not aware of too many people, I can't think of anyone who has worked 20, 25 hours and built a successful company while doing that. I'm sure there's lots of people uh, to Ferris maybe one of them that are working, but that's wow. just, yeah, four hours, but 
four hour? Four hour, four hour. And he hates that question on his podcast too. He's like, yes, I work more than four hours a week, so that's kind of bullshit. <laughs> but it, nonetheless, it's a good thing. So Ashcroft Capital, $2.7 billion in assets under management. What's your advice or suggestions for when is enough enough? When does someone know when growth mode is over and it's okay to, to coast or maintain? How does someone, because there are certainly business people that just want to grow, 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 and they're going to grow until they want to grow until they die. Is there a point at which enough is enough? And yeah, how does someone know when to shift their priorities and, and get out of that hyper growth mode? Well, I think it depends on if we're talking about the business or the individuals, because I will never go out of growth mode personally. When I go out of growth mode, to me, that means I'm not listening to personal development, watching personal development videos on YouTube. I'm not recording my voice and doing incantations and listening to my voice for at least 10 minutes a day. I'm not reading the books. I'm not doing that. I will never get out of that. I have before. And my brain went to mush. I was not a fan of myself. And so I won't go back there. So I will always be in growth mode personally. From a business standpoint, I think we've got to have situational awareness of where our business is and what are the market dynamics around it. And sometimes it doesn't make sense to buy as many properties. Sometimes it makes sense to build a moat around the business and circle wagons and stay put and just execute on the business plans that, that you have. Uh, that's a case-by-case situation. So when you went out of growth mode and then you weren't happy with yourself, do you mind speaking a little more of that of how you kind of caught yourself and turned things back around and how that worked? Yeah, I mean, doing those podcast interviews was incredible. I I, I don't think anyone in the world's interviewed more real estate investors than I have. Over 1,500, maybe 2,000. And so it was like, I don't know what kind of degree I got, an official degree I got, but I learned a lot. From it. And then I just stopped. And I wasn't as in tune with what's happening in the industry, didn't hear personal stories from investors, and, and I got disconnected. And I wasn't as valuable to my investors. I just wasn't as savvy or, or in touch with what was going on. And how I operate, how I learned as I read, that's primary reading, and I have conversations with others and learn their stories. So I recognized that I wasn't adding the value in the conversations with investors and with others that I used to, and so I made a change. All right, we can open it up to audience questions. You know, Austin shares a story about how your integrity is so high and you made your investors whole in that first deal. Our personal relationship, I've seen that integrity translate through the many years after that, but what I don't know is where it stems from, and I know it's a kind of a hard question to answer, but there, you're in the minority of people who would have made their investors whole and paid the 80% return in that situation. Why do you think you chose that if personal development mindset wasn't on your radar many years prior to that? So a major event that I remember, it, it, you know, it, it was kind of minor on the radar, but it had a big mm-hmm. impact on me. Minor at the time, but it had a big impact on me was I lied to my dad, I was around middle school, and he said, go in front of this plaque 
and it was black that said something to the effect of be proud of who you are when no one's looking. And there was a, a mirror-based plaque, so was, you're also looking right at yourself as I was reading that. And I always remember that. And I was raised by people who have high integrity. And my, one of my brothers went to West Point, is about to be a general, most likely about to be a general in the Army. And uh, so I was surrounded by people who led by that example. And I can tell you that I did not do it for them. I did it myself. I did it so I could be proud of who I am when no one's looking. Uh, I was happy for them, but it wasn't for them. And I think that's a big distinction in business and growing a company. If you're doing it for first and foremost for yourself because it fulfills you and it's who you are, that's going to carry you a lot farther than any external driver. And I know Matthew McConaughey talks about don't eat crumbs. Like, don't do things that you're going to be looking over your shoulder, hoping that so you don't run into so and so, you know, at at the ball game or something. That's not a fun place to be, I imagine. And so that's a thought process. I assume most people in this room, if they were to be sitting, uh, see like you are right now and where you've been and what you've done, they would think that they probably achieved what they want to do in life, but they feel like they might have made it to a certain extent. Being at the place you are now, where you probably saw yourself when you were younger, what's something on a business level and a personal level that you still feel is a long goal that you're shooting for? Yeah, good question. Uh, both good questions. I'd say, so I'm in a mastermind with some really accomplished individuals. And what I've realized is that everybody has challenges. Everybody in this room, everybody in this room has challenges, right? And so everyone's got personal challenges, everyone's got professional challenges. There's always something going on with people. And it's usually how they react to us is not at all typically about us. It's about what they've got going on uh, with themselves. So to answer your question directly about personal and professional goal or something, things I want to accomplish. I mean, the goal right now professionally is to make sure we continue to perform on our current properties. That's that's the number one goal. Grow NOI and keep occupancy high and navigate the rising interest rate environment. And then come out in 2025 stronger from a professional standpoint and then know how to navigate these types of things and be more aware of when situations like rising interest rates might take place next time so that we're, we're even better prepared for it. So that's professionally. Personally, it's, I can't say I have a personal goal. I'll tell you one thing though that I find helpful. We just created a family mantra and it's still your cup. And CUP is an acronym, and the C stands for contribution. So contributing uh, versus consuming, focusing on contributing, focusing on creating uh, versus just consuming. So C, uh, U is unique skill set. I believe that if we focus on our unique skill set, as I mentioned earlier, when we double down on that, that's going to set us up for success. And the P is perspective. 
uh, having perspective. And we got we got stuff going on, but we're not a hospice patient right now, like or even a hospice patient. We're still alive. And we can still talk. I mean, everyone's there's there's someone's always got a voice in us, and having that perspective by volunteering is important. So personally, while it's not a goal, it's family mantra to live by that we've recently established, and that's something that helps guide us. It's already over you know, trying to scale, so you have a few for you know, apartment complexes, and uh, you want to grow it to 10,000. Try to grow it incrementally, 10, 12, 15 units at a time, and if you sell it off, then trade up into a few unit or 100 units. Talk a little bit about, if you had to do it over, how would you scale it? I would, is there a period of time to get to the 10,000 units that would be yeah. five years? Five to seven years. Five to seven years at 10,000 units. Well, unless I have the money to, let's say 10,000 units is the goal, unless I have the money to buy those 10,000 units, which I'm assuming no in this hypothetical scenario, then investors are going to need to uh, be a, um, a variable. In this equation and a very significant variable in this equation. So, um, yeah, you need three things money, deal, execution. Uh, I would identify where my strengths are, money, deal, execution. And then I would find a partner to four partners, maybe one to two partners, never more than two partners, probably only one. And I would find the right partner. And let's just say, you know, my, <laughs> yeah. You're, you're right at the cusp. You have three. You're right at three. You're at three. No more. Sorry, John. I would have a, I mean, listen, I would do what I did, but I would try and compress it to go faster in that scenario. So I would do the two interview a day podcast, and that would establish myself, that would create connections, and I would go twice as fast as. You know, this guy did in that scenario because I'm interviewing two people and the benefit we talked about the very first question was goals, 50 50 goals. Doesn't matter if anyone listens to the podcast, you're speaking to too many people a day, you're building relationships, you're building all of reciprocity, you're adding value to them and you're learning. And that's going to open up a lot of doors for you from an investor standpoint. And then after I did two interviews a day for I do it all seven years until I, or until I got to the 10,000 units. We'll establish more of a, a, a network to bring in those investors. The key will be money and assuming that you have the right person underwriting deals and can execute on them. And so I, I think that's, that's where my area of focus would be, assuming that's where the talents are in this scenario. So podcast twice a day and uh, know where my strengths are and then find a partner to complement those other areas. And tactically speaking, two, four units, that doesn't do much selling them. I mean, so I keep them and maybe can try and do 1031s and scale that on the side until it became too much of a nuisance. It's a good story for investors. Yeah, I have two, four units. And versus, yeah, I used to have two, four units. I sold them. It's just, it's just different. So I think it has more credibility to the journey if you still own the properties. Would you maybe redefine what CL is if you 
might be able to ask, you know, would it be time you're committing to it, how much investment money you're taking on, type assets? Just curious if you can answer that differently on just the limits. I guess it just depends on who's asking. Like, it's just that it's, there's no right or wrong answer to get to 10,000 units or, or just to scale and have a lifestyle business. I mean, it just depends on the person and it's completely different paths. If it's more of a lifestyle business, then yeah, you keep, keep the units at 1031 and you self-manage or you don't, actually don't. It's a lifestyle business and you scale it that way. You do not get to 10,000 units in seven years in that scenario, but you have more time with your significant other and if you have any kids. Uh, so there's a trade-off. It just depends on how you, what you prioritize. I'm just going to jump in. Is this a 10x is easier than 2x question? Yeah, it's a good book. Yeah. Uh, we have a book club. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I guess. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's related. So 10x greater than 2x, easier than 2x. The concept is it's easier to get 10x um, because you singularly focus on one thing and you cut out all that other stuff. But in order to do that, you got to know what to cut out. And if you're just starting out, you don't know what to cut out because you haven't tested all that stuff. Last question to your partner. Did you have a question or do you want us to wrap up? No, I'm just going to wrap up, but I'll ask you a question. Well, we have one last question. The most important is to your money. They're all in this business. And everybody needs money all the time. The world is your one place to make money. So, Google Joe Fairless Thought Leadership Platform. He lays out some incredible advice, but go ahead. Please write that down. Yeah. Uh, Joe Fairless Thought Leadership Platform. This was published 2015, and it still applies today. So yeah, the biggest challenge that I had was starting out is that I was working in advertising. I was a vice president of an advertising agency. I owned some single family homes, but by and large, people knew me as an advertising professional. And so I had to change the perception that people had of me from advertising professional to real estate investor. And how I did that was by teaching that class at New York City uh, and also having a podcast. So I'm shifting the perception of people. Oh, yeah, I know we work together at that ad agency, but okay, yeah, I saw that you have been doing single family homes at the time. Oh, so that's the first thing. If you're coming from a W-2 job or if you're coming from another industry, you've got to shift the perception that people have within a circle or inner circle. Because those in that inner circle, those are the first people who are going to invest with us. And I'll give you a tactic once you identify, once you once you have that perception shift taking place through a thought leadership platform, a blog, or, or a podcast, or a YouTube channel, or a meetup. Uh, once you have that taking place, then the thing I did that was helpful is I created a spreadsheet of all the people that I knew. And then in that spreadsheet, I put their names, I put uh, how, what network I knew them from. So, for example, flag football team, Texas Tech where I went to school, advertising, former advertising co-worker. And then, so I had those three, we'll use those three networks as an example. So then within those three networks, in the spreadsheet, I grouped it or I sorted it by that column. And so I saw I've got three people on my flag football team that might be interested in investing. And I strategically reached out to the individual who was the most influential of the three. And then I spoke to him. And then what that does is I saw it take place literally on a phone call with my 
largest investor for the first deal, I sorted, I called not the boss's boss, but the one underneath him. And I got him, Brandon, on board. And once he was on board, he then told the boss's boss. And the boss's boss said, well, if Brandon's on board, yeah, I'll be on board too. And so you, you get that social credibility as a result of being strategic about who you bring on or who, you, who you're able to connect with initially within that group. And then that group starts having conversations among themselves. Hey, guys, please give it up with Mike McManus, Jonathan Hyatt. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better, so I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. And number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.